From the Los Angeles Times, this is Can't Stop Watching, your TV faves on their TV faves. I'm your host, Ivan Villarreal. On today's episode, we can't stop watching Ricky Gervais. He plays Tony Johnson on the Netflix star comedy Afterlife. Ricky talks to me about the concept behind the show, the anxiety dreams he's been having in London, and the trouble with his face mask. All I've got is like an industrial thing for like asbestos and dust. And it feels like I can't breathe underneath it. It soon fills up with this cloud of my own hot breath. It's like I'm in a little sauna. And also if I go up my sunglasses on, they steam up. And just a heads up, everyone, we recorded this interview in mid-May. Let's get to it. Well, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. So why don't you tell our listeners where you're doing this interview from? I'm doing it from my home in Hampstead, a leafy northern village suburb of London in my study. My office is down the road, which I haven't been to for six weeks, obviously. Yeah, I can't be more specific. (laughs) How did you spend your morning before joining us? Well, I don't even know what time it is over there. It's not morning for you. Evening, beer o'clock. I got up, had breakfast, went for a long walk on Hampstead Heath. Came back, we had a couple of games of badminton. See, my, my girlfriend's a novelist and she usually has got the house to herself because I'm having meetings and stuff. But now I'm home, it's like having a toddler home because like, she keeps going, let me just finish this sentence, I'll play with you in a minute. Okay, let me just do this. So I had lunch, I had a little nap. I'm at that age now where I, I, I get up in the morning, right? I wake up, I open my eyes. I think I can't wait for the nap. I've got five hours before I can have a little nap. And then uh, what did I do then? I worked out, believe it or not, did a little bit of work. And by a little bit of work, I really mean a little bit of work. Did you find that it was, at least in the beginning, harder to sort of focus and write? Like, did it take you a while before you got into the groove of it during this time? Well, we don't know of the results yet because nothing I've written in this time has has been made. So uh, we'll, we'll soon find out. You know what? Joking aside, it's nearly made no difference to me. I was very antisocial anyway. I didn't like people coming to the house. I've had this eight-bedroom house knocked into one bedroom so my family can never stay with me. So the lockdown really suits me. <laughs> I've always got enough booze for a nuclear winter. So that's fine. No, I, uh, I suppose the big difference is uh, I was on tour. So all those gigs from sort of end of March onwards are postponed. So that's that's the big difference for me. But yeah, I'm, I'm a writer and I'm doing exactly what I would have been doing anyway. And, uh, and at six o'clock, I've always got a beer and then it's Netflix. So the evenings have literally not changed apart from gigs. <laughs> well, you mentioned, you know, the tour situation. How has that been to sort of navigate like the unknown of when you can get back on stage? Yeah, that's the only frustrating thing. I think I've had anxiety dreams about when can I do all these gigs? When can I fit all these gigs in? Or I'm turning up to the wrong venue and things. I, You know, luckily I was halfway through it anyway. I haven't filmed it yet. I'm scheduled to be filming it for Netflix in October in London. I don't know if that'll happen. I don't know if the gigs will happen. And the other problem is, even if they do happen, I might not have been gigging for six months. So I've got a not start again. I've got to get back into the groove. Not just get ring fit again, but there will be certain things that won't quite work. People will be going, why is he not mentioned 
the pandemic. <laughs> you know, this was this was written and it was really getting good, even though I say so myself. But you've got to do certain tweaks. You've got to acknowledge it. You you know you have to talk about the elephant in the room. I even thought of um, doing some stuff where I go, I'm just going to do it anyway. It won't work now. And do obvious stuff that's, <laughs> you know, that was pre-pandemic that wasn't really, if you know what I mean. So it just looks out of place. But it won't take too much work. But I, I do want to honour them all. I haven't cancelled any yet. They're all postponed. You know, I'm doing big, big venues. So they'll be the last to come back. The ones I just cancelled, you know, there were Copenhagen was 13,000. So my gigs will be the last to come back. But people have kept their tickets. And it also comes to the point where you think, well, if I can't find a venue to honour all those people for two years' time, I'll give them their money back, film it and start again, do a new tour. You know, you know, I'm putting in these postponed gigs for next February. But we don't know. There might be a second wave. We just don't know. People might have suddenly found out they don't need to pay hundreds of pounds to see me. They can amuse themselves. You know, we don't know what happened. They also come to a point when I just say, listen, I'm too old. <laughs> I've been in lockdown for three years. Honestly, I've just drunk too much. I can't move. I can't move anymore. It certainly won't be stand-up. I might do sit-down. I might just me in a chair. Basically, it'd be me on a toilet at the Royal Albert Hall. Right? And if you if people want to see that, then good luck to them. <laughs> I just need our listeners to know that I'm holding back my laughter only so I don't interrupt your audio because we're recording in such a unique situation. I am laughing. But on that topic, when do you think that you'll even feel comfortable? Like, or when the audience will feel comfortable? Like, even if the venues are opening up again. But just because they open up again doesn't mean people are comfortable yet. Well, no. And... I think that people will, they'll know when it's right. You know, if, if people start saying, listen, infections have gone down now to a few hundred around the world, we, we know we're safe. People will look at the stats. We will know, you know, it's on the news every day. And it, even if there's, there's bad information, eventually the right information, and we can see it. We can look out the window. And I, and I think that people on the whole have behaved well, of course there's some idiots. There were probably idiots during the Second World War leaving their lights on. You know, you can't legislate against stupidity. But I think most people are taking government and expert advice and I'm carrying on like it's all going to be okay. Well, I hope you're right. You mentioned you've been watching a lot of TV. Tell me what you've been consuming. What TV shows? I've watched Tiger King, Don't Fuck With Cats, I've got the last episode, uh, The Last Dance. Amazing. I don't know anything about basketball. I've been to a few Knicks games in my time. I, I think it's an amazing documentary, as are the first two. The Don't Fuck With Cats, I thought. I wanted to be friends with those two internet nerds. who try, You know what I mean? I just want to go. I never wanted that to end. I just want to turn on the TV and those two are on there talking about stuff. Like they go, we found a paedophile. I go, where? They go, Kansas. I go, good luck. Right? That's, you know what I mean? Like tweets, just like, you know, I, I absolutely love it. I mean, Tiger King, uh, my advice to people, if you think you're a little bit weird, watch Tiger King and realise that you're not. I mean, never, uh, but was, was there a normal person there? I'll tell you the normal person, the woman who lost her arm. She was like, it was a tragedy because she was like the normal one. And she was so stoic about it. And she had to get back to work quickly. 
It was incredible. And when did that happen? More tigers in captivity in America than in the wild. The first time someone in a blues on, right, and carrying guns went to ask an official, can I keep a tiger? They should have said, no, of course you can't fucking keep a tiger. Are you mental? It's 500 pounds and it eats people. You can't keep a fucking tiger. Why didn't that happen? That's why. That's what I took from that. Also, I've been in bands where I wore similar clothes to a lot of those people. <laughs> but it was, it was 1982. I'm also watching the usual, you know, Scandi Noir or sort of world, world dramas again, about crazy people, serial killers, undercover stuff. The Bureau jumped straight into the pantheon of the greatest uh, top five. I mean, up there with Sopranos, Wire, Bridge. It's amazing. A French. It's great. The Bureau. I watched uh, Alex, um, the second series of Before We Die, another Scandi thing. Quicksand about a uh, high school shooting. Again, all, all in their own language with uh, subtitles. I want to suggest to Netflix they shouldn't ever dub anything. When you accidentally put on the dubbed version, I mean, these, these are the greatest actors from all around the world. And then they get a couple of jobbing actors in a booth for a day. And it's, it's like the level of acting is like, you know, the between the levels on a video game. Okay, we're going to get now. You're going to blow you away, bitch. It's that, it's that sort of acting. And I'm going, look, don't, don't do it. You don't need to do it. Let's, everyone can read. Everyone can read, right? Let's, let's. I want to hear the dubbed versions of Afterlife. That's, that should be interesting. Well, how do you think Tony, who's your character in Afterlife, would be handling life in quarantine? He'd love it. He'd absolutely love it. He's got his dog. He could take his dog for a walk. He'd probably be annoyed at people, although I am. I mean, honestly, I turn into a school teacher when I'm walking down the street. I want to explain to people, listen, if you're talking to two people right, across the road, right, and you're two metres apart, I've got to walk between you. So I can't be two metres away from my room. Do it long ways along the road so I can walk on the other side of the road. They don't get out of the way. I'm in the bushes. So I've got to get in the bushes to get away from you. To it. So I'm going to get Lyme disease. That's what I'm going to get. Okay, right. So no one gets coronavirus, but I'm now in a hospital bed with Lyme disease because you two idiots wouldn't get out of the way. So that's how Tony would deal with it. Exactly the same as me. <laughs> Except he wouldn't bite his tongue. All I've got is a little wobble of the head and a tucked. That's all I'm brave enough to do. And I walk past. Oh, so annoying. What kind of mask do you have? Is it a black mask? Is it patterned? I don't go out. I only, I only sort of go out for the walk um, and I keep away from people. But I, the one I've got, all I've got is like an industrial thing for like asbestos and dust. And it feels like I can't breathe underneath it. It soon fills up with this cloud of my own hot breath. It's like I'm in a little sauna. And also, if I go up with my sunglasses on, they steam up. So I'm just walking along the road like, oh, I don't know what I look like. Joking aside, you won't hear me complain anyway. I've said this so many times. Not when there's nurses doing 14-hour shifts. I'm fine. From my whinging, I'm absolutely fine. And there are a lot of people worse off. We are forever indebted to those frontline workers, for sure. Well, let's talk about Afterlife. I mean, for those that don't know, Ricky plays Tony, a sort of cynical journalist for a small local paper, 
who is struggling to cope with the loss of his wife, and he still remains a presence in his ailing father's life. What was going on in your own life? Like, what were you thinking about when you created this series? The seed of the idea wasn't really character-based, and it usually is, particularly with me and particularly with sitcom. The sort of character comes to us, like David Brent existed before The Office, Derek existed before Derek, etc. The concept came first, rather like a a movie, not unlike something like The Invention of Lying. And it was it was just a, a few sentences that came to me as, as the concept, which was, imagine you lost everything and you were going to kill yourself, but you didn't, something stopped you. And then you had time to think, okay, if I'm going to stick around, I'm going to punish the world. I'm going to have as much fun. I'm going to do what I want. I could have been dead. And I've always got that to fall back on. So I'm going to do and say what I want. And then if it all gets too much, I can always kill myself. It's like a superpower. That was, the, that was the, the starting point. Then I had to think, what's losing everything? Right, your, your soulmate, your life partner. You put everything into it. You've lost the love of your life. You don't want to live on. It's like your life's over. Then the title, afterlife, after his life. And then I thought, why doesn't he kill himself? Because the dog's hungry. And that was it. That all happened in a few minutes in my head. Then the tricky bit was weighing up the comedy with the drama, the seriousness. I didn't want it to be... I didn't want it to be like like I was a cool, hard-drinking vigilante. It had to be comedic. I, I thought, hold on, can people go from crying their eyes out to laughing hysterically? And I thought, yeah, of course they can, because that's life. That is exactly what life is. You, you're having a good time, and then you get a terrible text. And I fed all that back in, that it was the ups and downs, the one-man struggle. And you develop that, and soon it becomes, it's not just about losing someone, it's about battling Grief, mental illness, depression. You know, he's going through the seven stages of grief, really. And uh, we jumped off with him going through shock, anger, denial. And then series two, he's into negotiating. He's going, okay, well, what? I tried everything. I tried violence. I tried drugs. Didn't work. What now? What about giving back? What about, yeah, okay, let's try that. That was the concept in a nutshell. I think we second-guess people too much. I could easily have watered that down. And I think we second-guess the public. We go, can they take it? You know, it starts with a woman going through chemotherapy knowing she's dying. I understand. That's, that's heavy. I, 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 I could quite understand people going, I can't watch this at the moment. But weirdly, everyone who'd gone through that identified with it and really liked it. I've never had a reaction like it. And it was the emotional response that was the most different. And I thought, right everyone's grieving. Of course, but they can't usually walk up to a stranger and tell them. No one tweets, I'm grieving. And so they identified with something they hadn't seen before and it was treated a way they liked it. And so I, I took that all on board and put that all into the second series. And I thought, I've got to treat this responsibly. He can't just snap out of it. And that's why I made him, no, he's not better. Of course he's not better. Well, and the second season dropped last month. How is it to have it come out during this time? You know, the show is obviously not about now, but it might resonate on a deeper level. Like, I know I'm seeking out shows that make me feel a lot more than I'm seeking out shows that purely just make me laugh. I want to have that connection right now. That, that's true. I, I thought that and uh, I was right. And I think the reason is people were crying out for content. I think people were tired of watching TV shows made of Zoom. So... So there was that, you know. <laughs> but no, I think you're right. And I think it's because people have had a few weeks to think about the important things in life. 
Everyone I know has phoned their parents and their grandparents more. Everyone. They're talking to their grandparents and their parents and their family more than they did. Because in good times, we know it's safe. That's lovely. They're fine. See you Sunday. I think people start, start thinking about, oh, what if, you know, this is, you know, people realise the important things in life. And, and it wasn't to rush out and buy a thousand items of toilet roll. That was, that was day one. That was people's first thought. Right. <laughs> In a pandemic, I'm going to need a lot of tissue paper. <laughs> first thing I did was I counted my bottles of wine. That was, that was what I did. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. And also, I, I, people who never really suffered from anxiety started having dreams about this because it was weird. They didn't know it wasn't their normal routine. They were thrown. And the thing about it is, even people that didn't usually, you know, uh, go out and talk to people, gregarious, running down the street saying hello to everyone, even the people that thought they were loners, even when they're sitting in a, a cafe by themselves, they're still surrounded by people. People weren't running around hugging all the time. But when something is imposed upon you, like people who think, oh, when am I get a haircut? We all think, look at you. You've never had a haircut. What do you care about having a haircut? I need a haircut. It's because someone's saying they can't. And the really funny thing is, for years, our government has been trying to get people to exercise for an hour a day. Tell them they can only exercise for an hour a day, and they're out twice. Now they've got the, the gear on, they're cycling up hills. They're like, what are you doing? You're suddenly going to do a marathon, are you? Because you want to go out twice. <laughs> I feel like we're giving you all the comedic bits you need for this show when it comes back for your stand-up routine. Oh, I think, do you know what? The, my worry about that is I can feel it. There's a thousand people right now writing their post-apocalyptic novel called Virus. And that, you know, Virus. It's a, it's a, a drama it's set in the Big Brother house where everyone gets infected. <laughs> There's going to be a thousand terrible books and dramas and comedies. <laughs> um, so, uh, no. I'll, uh, I'll touch on it. Have you thought of a joke? No, but I will. I certainly will when the time's right. You know, um, there's nothing you shouldn't joke about. But, um, you know, it depends on the time and the place and the, all those things. But sure, definitely. I'll, def I'll definitely do stuff about it. Just not too much because I, I, I think, as I say, everyone's thinking about the same thing. There's going to be a lot of overlap. You've got to try and go the other way. You know, that's what you've got to do. I've been doing sort of things like this once every few days, just on Twitter Live, just talking about it. It's content. It's just, it's just rubbish. That's all. It's just, all, it's just, all, it's free. They can't complain. It's 1945. Hitler is defeated. America is looking to outsmart a new enemy, the Soviet Union. 
To advance in rocketry, aviation, and chemical weapons, America recruits scientists and engineers who fueled the war machine of another nation, Nazi Germany. Operation Paperclip brought the Third Reich's most ingenious and often villainous men to the United States. The War Department thought if we let them go back to Germany, some other nation will pick them up and use them against us. His file said he was 100% Nazi, a dangerous type. Somehow, the file was changed and he came in. I'm Michael Ian Black. Join me and historian Monique Laney on this series, Paperclip, funded by Amazon Studios and produced by LA Time Studios in support of the Emmy-eligible original drama series, Hunters, starring Al Pacino and Logan Lerman. Available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, let's get back to the show. I mean, you've experienced grief in your life. I know your mother passed away at the age of 74, right? What has surprised you about grief? I know for me, like I think I mentioned on this show, like I lost my father three years ago. I still find myself crying like I just got the news sometimes. It just hits you. So what surprised you about grief? We always think, you always think, well, that's that's too young. You know, mum was 74. My dad, my dad was uh, 82 and uh, I lost my older brother uh, last year. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't get less sad as you go on you know the more the the longer you live the more people you've lost you know it's as simple as that and and there's there's a certain amount in in comfort in the natural order of things when you're little you lose a goldfish then you lose your cat the dog your grandparents your mum and dad then your siblings and and i think the tragedy is when you've got the injustice involved of this wasn't the natural order of things with tony's it we lost he lost his wife way too young. He even says when he lost his dad, it's not like losing Lisa. You know, I still miss him. He's angry and there's no one to be angry. He's frustrated as well because another play on the title is he doesn't believe in an afterlife. He hasn't even got that comfort. He hasn't even got the comfort of she's looking down on you. He doesn't believe that. And there's a line where he says, you know, I, I, I know she's not in heaven. Uh, when he says he wants to join her, Matt says that doesn't make any sense. He went, no, I know she's nowhere, but I'd rather be nowhere with her than somewhere without her. And I just think it sums up that he thinks life is that. That's what life was to him. It was being with her. There's a line in series two when he says people don't get it. They think if I just did all the things I used to do with Lisa, it would make me feel better. But I don't miss doing things with Lisa. I miss doing nothing with Lisa. He just wants her around. He doesn't care about anything else. The one thing that will make him feel better he knows he can't have. That's his struggle. We ask the big question, if you lose everything, is life still worth living? Everyone, whether they admit it or not, um, will one day have to answer that question. What's your view on death? Are you scared of it? I'm not scared of being dead, because I believe I won't know about it. That is the best thing about being dead. Um, You don't know about it. It's like being stupid. It's only painful for others. So I do. I worry. Obviously, I worry about how I die. I don't want to I, I do want to live a long, um, joyful life. That there's the trick. I don't want to live on on any terms. I don't, you know, I uh, I personally believe that if you've had enough, you should be allowed to cash in your chips. But yeah, I love life. 
I, I think of it as a as an absolute privilege. The chances of us being here, us being us, right? That's amazing. And I, I think of life, it's like a holiday. We don't exist for 13 and a half billion years. And then we have this 80, 90, 100 years, if we're lucky, of consciousness, introspection, joy, love, laughter, wine, dogs, pizza. And then that's it. Do I wish we live forever? No, I, I don't think I do wish that. And I, and I think to live your life like there might be a, a second one. We've got this one. We know that this is a bird in the hand. Let's live this. Let's assume this is all we've got. How amazing. Well, let's hope this time at home has sort of gotten everyone to reflect on that. You know, we talked about returning to stand-up after all this, but I know you're writing season three of of the show. How has what we're going through sort of affected the writing? Like, are you thinking about scenes that involve more than two people? Like, how do I, how do we space this out? I mean, I have, I have wondered that. I have thought, can you, can you have, you know, high risk, vulnerable people in it? How will it work practically? I know some film is trying to go back soon with two people and crew in gear. And, and I think, oh, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, as I say, I'm hoping that it'll go back to normal. I, I don't know what sort of hit that I'll have on budgets. And can I ask someone to act in something? I go, listen, this is really important. You might die, but it's for Netflix and it's going to get a lot of viewers. So, you know, I, I think real life is more important than TV. You know what I mean? I go, yeah, that's, that's not worth it. It's not worth it. I, I'm a hypochondriac, so I don't want to do it. I, go, I don't want these people coughing on me. I'm not doing that. No crowd scenes. <laughs> Just <laughs> so yeah, um, I've thought of that, but I've 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 decided that I, I'll go with the flow within reason. But I'm assuming that I, you know I need it to go back to sort of normal. I mean, it's different. Everyone wearing masks to no one can ever be within two meters of each other. I can't see a production. Although my show, my show is one of the few shows that probably could do that. It's me and a dog. It's me on a bench. We can make the bench longer. <laughs> you know, it's, it's Lisa on, you know, iPhone. She can film that in her house and send it to me. Um, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> you know what? I like to think I'll always do the right thing. And I'll always, and I'll always put people first before a buck. I'll do what's right is my answer. Well, before we wind things down, I mean... You've hosted the Golden Globes a few times, and we've got the Emmys coming up, at least in theory. Do you think they will actually happen? Like, are people ready for that? Even the Globe seems too soon. Like, if you were hosting, like, what would make you comfortable? I don't know. Um, well, I mean, if you're hosting, you're safe, aren't you? You're on, you're on stage, and you can be, you know, two meters away. You're the one that's coughing onto other people. So maybe they lose the front row. that's when that's when all the the uh film stars would want to be at the back they usually want to be at the front but they want to be at the back (laughs) (laughs) they got the fat brit in he's coughing all over the place we're going to the back (laughs) brad and george they're right at the back they put the reality stars down the front (laughs) they don't care (laughs) um i I don't know i I probably wouldn't host the emmys anyway because it's just too much work and um, I, I found my gig with the Golden Globes. But I don't think there's another award show 
that would let me say what I want, turn up the day before with some handwritten jokes and go, I'm not rehearsing, I'm going to stand there, I'm, I'm going to do seven minutes. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think there's another award show that would go, brilliant, thanks, Rick. If, if someone said, listen, you can turn up, you can stand there, no one gets in the way, everyone's six feet apart or whatever, do you want to do it? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd probably take that gig if, if I wanted to do the gig anyway, if you know what I mean. But I don't know if it would happen. It might happen in some form. I think, I mean, in the writer's strike, they, I think I won a Golden Globe during the writer's strike and they just read it out in a hotel one morning and they went, Ooh, and the winner is Ricky. I wasn't there. They went, you've won a Golden Globe. I went, cheers, send it over. Um, I've got it over there and they haven't even put the markings on it. They didn't even, right, I'm going to show you this, right? I won that for best comedy performance in extras. And it's blank. They didn't even fucking bother engraving it. <laughs> You got to just keep it like that now. It's like, there's no point. <laughs> Do you know what? I think I will. People think I just got it in a, some sort of like jumble sale and just the, the wiped or it was someone else's. Too good. <laughs> well, our last question comes from our previous guest, Danny McBride. And here's, here's what he had to say. I would just like to know uh, from him, like, why has he never called? Why has he never reached out? Doesn't he know how much I like everything he's made? Why won't he just call and ask if I want to participate? Oh, what a lovely, oh, what, I love things like that. I absolutely love things like that. Well, the, the answer is, I'm so lazy. I just work with my mates and I've never met him. But that's, a, that's fantastic. And he's fantastic. When, I got, when I've got someone that isn't set in a quaint British village, called Tambry. <laughs> uh, call him. Oh, that's lovely. Hi, Danny. Thank you. I think you're brilliant. So tomorrow's guest is Succession's J. Smith Cameron. And what question would you like us to ask her? Okay. If the universe is only 13.5 uh, billion years old, and given the, the speed of light and the occurrence of the Big Bang, why... Is the universe more than 26 billion miles? <laughs> oh, you put me on the spot. That has to be my favorite question. I feel so bad for J. Smith Cameron trying to answer that one. But I will pose it to her. I will do it. Cheers. <laughs> so, Ricky, like... I assume you're looking forward to your nap. Can you just, before we leave, can you give us some tips on how to nap? Because I can't, I'm bad at it. Like I either sleep for like 10 minutes or like three hours. I never get that 30 minute nap. Get yourself a playlist. We've got a, this indie folk sort of playlist where um, we put it on, we're down. We wake up at the same song at about 55 minutes. It's perfect. It's like, it's some sort of like, and we're, we're done. There you go. I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you very much. That's it for the 14th episode of Can't Stop Watching. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. Our producer is Paige Heimson, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin. And a special shout out to Elena Howe for booking the guest for this podcast. Come back tomorrow 
we're talking to Jay Smith Cameron. I got to work the next fall. First scene I remember shooting was Jerry and Roman watching Kendall do his press conference on an iPad and Mark Mylod saying, just, you know, just cozy up to him, a little foreshadowing. And I was like, excuse me, what was that you said? And he was like, oh my God, has no one told you? Oh, how horrible. Well, here's the thing. If you like Can't Stop Watching, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Matt Brennan, and Clint Shaw. We hope you're enjoying this podcast created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe, because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Thanks for listening and see you tomorrow.